This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, welcome to Drinking with Authors, the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Lamp. Co-hosting with me today is... Vanessa Valiente. And our esteemed guest is Diana Y. Paul. Woo! Okay, let's talk about what we're drinking first, as we always do so you can drink along. I had a friend, shout out to Tiffany, who gave me this um, bottle of Decoy Cabernet Sauvignon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I sound like a wine connoisseur. Um, I am, of course, drinking it in Drinking with Author Swag, which will we give to all of our guests. But, Vanessa, what are you drinking? Oh, I am drinking Kentucky Bourbon Ale, my favorite, like, practically my top three favorite beers. I'm drinking a Chardonnay. It's a Bocanugan. I should have had the bottle because that's a strange name to pronounce. It's Bocanugan, and it's local. It's from the Santa Lucia Highlands near Carmel, California. Wonderbar, wonderbar, wonderbar. Okay, <laughs> let's start with you telling the audience a little bit about what you write. All right. Uh, my novel, Things Unsaid, is a family saga, three generations. And it's uh, mainly the middle character is the sandwich mom. She has a daughter ready for college. And she's trying to take care of her aging parents. They need some help, but they haven't been the nicest parents. And she has to choose between financially supporting them or using the college fund for her daughter, which is what it was originally intended for. So is she going to pay for her college, the college tuition for her daughter? Or is she going to have to pay for her parents last year? while um, her daughter's going to have to struggle to um, pay for her college. Oh, man. Interesting. <laughs> it's something a lot of people face. A lot of my friends face that. And no. because they faced that, we had a lot of stories to exchange. Do so that was like the inspiration. Do you feel like they were like a really great resource to kind of beta read your book before you actually ended up publishing it? Yeah, Vanessa, that's actually what I did do. I got feedback from them. They were my beta readers. Some of their stories almost verbatim went into things unsaid. But, uh, you know, I asked them if it were possible. And they said, sure, nobody would know because those stories were so old. So um, the stories about their parents, because some of them, their parents were no longer alive. So, um, yes, it was actually uh, wonderful to have so many shared stories because I didn't think people would share some of those stories. So have you, how many books have you published? Just the one? This is my first fiction book. My second one during the lockdown has um, sort of stalled looking for a publisher, but it's a sequel to the first one in some ways. You don't have to read the first one, but the second one tentatively titled Deeds Undone turns the death of a professor in Things Unsaid into a cozy mystery. Ooh. And before that, I wrote two academic books on Buddhism and the theme of family obligation versus family karma is what infuses the novel. Oh, 
I did see that while we cyberstalked you because we cyberstalked our guests. So I did see that you have written quite a bit of academic books. I was a professor at Stanford and uh, the courses I taught were on Buddhism with a focus on women's roles. Wow. That's awesome. So when did you start writing period? Not just fiction, but when did you start begin your journey? Of when I first started writing stories, um, probably as soon as I learned how to write as a little girl. I love art. I'm also an artist, mixed media printmaking. And from the time I started uh, school, maybe six years old, I would create little stories with my own pictures and then present them as great gifts of art to family and friends. <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. So at, when you, you were a teacher, what did you go to school for? Pardon me, what was that again? What did you go Erica? to school for? Because you were a teacher. What did you study in school, though? Oh, what did I study before I taught Buddhism? Yeah. Um, well, at Northwestern as an undergraduate, I was um, majoring in uh, philosophy. That was mainly the German great thinkers and philosophers okay. and psychology. And the German philosophers were very interested in Hinduism. So that was my back door into the philosophy of India. And Hinduism, of course, was um, sort of superseded by Buddhism, which reformed Hinduism in some ways, but then Hinduism went on to other branches. So from philosophy and psychology, I then studied Buddhism at University of Wisconsin-Madison and got a PhD in Buddhist studies. Spent a year in Japan, meditating at Buddhist temples. And then I went to Stanford and taught. Oh my God, I feel like you need to just tell me a little bit about that experience. Like, that sounds amazing. Uh, like, what does that entail when you went over to Japan and actually studied that or actually experienced it there? Well, um, Buddhism infuses the culture. So no matter what you're studying, you're going to have some in Buddhist influence, just like in uh, American history, there's going to be some Judeo-Christian influence, no matter what you're studying. Puritanism or whatever. Well, in Japan, I stayed at Buddhist temples, which was a lot of fun with my husband. And I learned all the so-called Buddhist arts, the Zen Buddhist arts of calligraphy and uh, sumi painting and flower arrangement and how to cook Zen Buddhist meals. So that was loads of fun to do. And um, as a woman graduate student, I was the first woman allowed to stay at some of these Zen Buddhist temples. So that was a real trip too, seeing that uh, I was kind of stepping on certain boundaries, but that they felt that they needed to open the doors for me because of my research. And my PhD thesis was on the woman who becomes a Buddha. Oh, wow. So that went into a book called Women in Buddhism. That's a huge honor just to kind of be able to kind of, you know, bridge, you know, cross that barrier in a sense. Yes. And um, I wrote this book on women in Buddhism. And then after that, quite a few other women scholars who hadn't even thought of that because, you know, women's studies in those days wasn't really quite the subject it was now. So we were writing about a topic 
a subtopic of Buddhism that hadn't been touched upon before. And now there are quite a few books or articles on women in Buddhism, just as there are on women in religion in general. Women in religion has not been uh, a major focus in academia. That or it's never in our favor. <laughs> We're usually yeah. like right down over here. So. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So you go through this, which by the way, that sounds like you could write many novels based on your adventures in your life in general. <laughs> You know, because that in and of itself would probably be a great adventure novel in, in that. So what brought you to deciding to write fiction? Where, how did you, how did we wind up, wind up here? Well, I always wanted to write a novel, but as an academic and then I went into business, I just never felt that I had the time to do it. And reading Buddhist sutras, some of the Buddha sutras, especially the ones that deal with girls wanting to become a Buddha and asking the Buddha, why can't women become Buddhas? There are lots of questions, lots of really interesting stories. They read like novels to me. And so I kind of had them in the back of my mind the whole time I was in academia. And then in, when I was in business, I was writing articles about business, especially U.S.-Japan trade, because that's the... Uh, field I was in, U.S., Japan, trade in Silicon Valley. So I've always been interested, though, in storytelling. As I said, I started when I was six years old making up stories. And in my printmaking, I was making up stories that went along with the art. So I've never stopped that. I've always been interested in, I think we are our stories. Stories we tell, stories told about us, uh, stories told to us. I think it's the way we connect with each other, you know, yeah. even, you know, we all come from different backgrounds and it's like the, I always say like reading books from people of other cultures and differences of us is the only way we really get to learn and kind of get into someone's head, you know, and to really kind of in a way kind of learn and live their experience by sitting there and just kind of like taking, just kind of like sinking into the story. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, for going from academic to fiction, I, I mean, that's such a completely different, you know, writing style. How did it feel to like, like, you know, was it very jarring? Uh, you know, did you seek out any specific books to kind of help you kind of, you know, get into that mind frame for structuring? Or do you just kind of like go based off maybe, you know, um, your intuition from books you've read in the past, you know, fiction wise? Good question, Vanessa. Every time I read a book, I always thought about how I would change it or what I loved about it. I would take notes on it. So I knew what novels I really loved. But I also took courses in creative writing. And then for my first novel, I actually had someone who was a novelist, but I won't say her name, uh, who went through the whole novel kind of as a developmental editor to give me her feedback. And that was priceless because it took textbook writing about how to write a novel and then made it very real in the sense that she could take it from one chapter to the next and interweave it like a quilt. Tell me what stitches were missing in the novel. And so writing the second one was a little easier, still difficult. Writing novels is a blood sport, but I still felt it was easier than the first one. <laughs> 
That is so I, true. I think it does get easier. We talked to a lot of authors on the show, obviously, but um, I think it's it's exercising a skill set you have, kind of like any other skill you do. The more you do it, the better you get at it, the more it comes to you, the more you find what works for you and what doesn't work for you and how you do, you know, put all the pieces together. Because I, there's no writers that write the same. You know, it's kind of yes. like there's no painters that paint exactly the same. That's right. It has your stamp on there. And I feel, especially as a professor, former professor, I could tell if a student was not really writing that essay, his oh. voice and style did not come out clearly. And then I knew they either had somebody else write part of it, or they might have copied somebody else's writing. But I think it's like your fingerprints. You just know a person's voice and writing. Yeah, I think one of our editors, because I'm an editor too, but our Jen, who's our other editor, she's also a um, a professor for English, and she always tells us she's like, "Had another student plagiarizing again," mm -hmm. and it wasn't because she recognized the text. It's exactly for what you were just saying, like the voicing didn't match, yeah. and you just don't really like you until you hone it. You don't realize like how your personality and your word choice and what you choose how you choose to view something informs the way you write and you can't, you cannot replicate someone's mm -hmm. you and you, you can only be true to yourself when you're, you know, actually, you know, getting into that zone. Exactly. In yeah. fact, one of my, I think one of my favorite authors and his style really blows me out of the water is uh, Khalid Hussein in the kite runner. Yes, <laughs> the, the thousand splendid suns. A thousand splendid suns can be even better. But oh. in the kite runner, as I said, I'd read a novel and kind of dissect it. You know, the two boys in that, one from an upper class family and one from a very poor family, he wrote the sentence structure so differently for each of those boys. You knew who was talking without having any identifiers. Oh, it, and then in A Thousand Splendid Sums, he uses a woman's voice. It, it's truly, truly genius. He, he, he guts me every time. He yeah. gutted me. Specifically A Thousand Splendid Sums, because yes. you know, if you're a female and you're reading this, and then yeah. you're just, you're like, what would you do? Especially... Um, not not the it's been like many years since I've read it I can't remember the characters names but the one that was had to wear the full yes. you know the full um and she like all the abuse and even though technically both girls you know ended up you know meeting together and even the one who grew up in a richer you know um family she still had bad things but like just and that I was like trying to imagine like what would happen if I got my dad just like married me off to this abusive man. And then all these things, like I just, it, it, yeah. ugh, it hurts. It Every does hurt, but in a good way. And that's when I know it's a good writer. When you feel the pain or even if you don't like the characters, you go, I really hate that character. I'm just so mad at that character. I think the author's accomplished what he or she wanted to accomplish. Right. I agree a thousand percent. And I, it's interesting you said something with um, writing in the voice of the character truly. You can always tell if an author understands. Like I was talking to um, a girl, uh, an author named Steph Coates, 
and she has a, a, a book called A Tree Born Cricket, and she writes these Florida novels, but they're sort of um, lower income, backwoods Florida kind of people in, in, a, in a lot of the, this particular series of novels. And one of the things that happened to her is actually a very interesting conversation, but one of the things that happened to her, she was um, uh, the editor and the publishing company changed so the very last page of the one of these backwards characters says something. I'm not going to reveal that. But it was that last sentence was not in the voice of the character the way it had been throughout the book. They caught that. Wow. No, they did that. So I asked her, so I'm like, it doesn't seem like this is something this character would say. And she's like, it's not. They made me change it. Oh. And I was like, that makes sense because it literally, it was so great in that moment it threw me out of the book in a way because I was like, wait a minute, this character, these are, this is a very undereducated character. And he says something that's very kind of poetic, but poetic with using all these big words. And I'm like, how the hell would I even know any of these words that are, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's so, yeah. And when she said that, she's like, she was so mad because they made her change that. Yeah. It gave her a lesson in dealing with publishers because she was like, they said that I had to change this, this, and this. And I was, and she's like, I hate it because I see it every time at the end of the book. This one line that this character says is like, they could have just cut it. Just cut it. They were uh, that's it. painful. That's painful to hear. Yeah. So you you were lucky to have this novelist, she who should not be named. Um but what was the editing process or the first going through? Because you've done Academia. Did you, I'm assuming you had editors on your, the stuff you wrote for Academia. What was that like for you the first time you went through the editing process? Well, the editing process of an academic book is very different. They're basically checking footnotes to see if you cited the right page and you cited the historical figure correctly. So it had nothing to do with the style. Whatever the academic style is, your voice, uh, no matter how detailed or overwrought it is, they didn't care. They were much more interested in the accuracy of the footnotes. Okay, and then you get to your baby, your novel, yeah. your first little one you wrote. Yes. How was that? That was very different. Um, I have to say I had excellent editors, two of them, and they really got inside my head and they were like my muses. Everything they recommended, I agreed with. And I go, oh my God, that's better than what I would have thought in my own process of developing the character. So I have absolutely no complaints about the, how the She Writes Press editors handled the novel, the manuscript at all. Not a single one did I have, oh, I wish you wouldn't say that, or I wish we didn't have to do that. No. When you got off incredibly lucky, and I hope you know how lucky you were. <laughs> I, do. Because I do. That is not always experience. That's absolutely right. And I went into it with a lot of fear and trepidation. You know, you're giving your baby over. It's like having somebody else babysit it. And I thought, oh. When it came back and it came back with a lot of marks all over the edges of the um, computer and I thought oh my god I'm almost afraid I held my breath reading them and then I thought no I just felt like I could say accept all changes it was that brilliant of an editing job 
That's amazing. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. How long did it take you to write the first book? The first book, um, I was also doing a lot of art at the same time. As I said, I'm a printmaker, and so some of my art is in local galleries and museums. So I sort of had this dual sides, although I think they contribute to each other. But the book, the writing, since I wasn't doing it full time too, it took me about five years to complete. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was a long, long haul. That, that sounds like an incredibly long haul. Yes, yes. In fact, I think if I had had the time to do it all in one straight shot, it would have been more like a year because then I'd have to go back and catch what my character was doing and go, oh, no, she's not that old. Oh, she she did this in the last chapter. I've got to go back now and change this. So um, it was a matter of the momentum, to have the momentum going forward. You know this too as a writer, Erica. If you lose the momentum a little bit, you kind of lose ground and you have to go back. So that was uh, what made that a longer process. The second novel only took me about a, a year, year and a half. Oh, wow. So what about, so you got the second novel. The first novel was published through where? How did you get the first one published? Um, she Writes Press came highly recommended by another author who was in memoir. She Writes Press actually um, specialized in memoir. And um, my friend also from Stanford had been very impressed with them and suggested them. So I just went right with them and didn't consider anybody else. And you didn't have to have like an agent or anything. You just went. To no, they do agented manuscripts to Vanessa. My for my second novel, I have an agent who's going to other presses. Nice. Very cool. So now that you've been somewhat bitten by the novel writing bug. <laughs> yes. What are your hopes and aspirations, my friend, in that regard? Because you've got manuscript number two but you shouldn't be stopping so where are we at with that well i write a blog on movie reviews i've always been fanatical about movies and tv like i think i was uh, entry member five for netflix because I was so excited that there was Netflix. And Netflix is not too far. The headquarters is not too far from me. So way before anybody knew what Netflix was, I was there. So my aspiration is to have a movie or a TV miniseries. I would just love that. I would absolutely adore that. And I've got the characters matched up with the actors. And I've got um, where the scenes would be. And they actually filmed Big Little Lies within walking distance of where I am because they filmed it in Carmel in Monterey. Yeah. So I'm really into the whole thing with where a movie's settings would be and um, what types of actors would be most uh, effective. Mm-hmm. So, so that's my aspiration, Erica and Vanessa. I want a movie or a TV miniseries. But it sounds like you want to direct. <laughs> I, no, well, here's the thing. I write screenplays. I write plays and I write screenplays. Yeah. So I can say this because when you're a writer and you're writing these things, what happens is you can have your whole vision, your whole story, but who you who really controls that story? Yeah. I'm not going to get into all the studio politics because that's a 
whole other freaking podcast. But um, the director, they take it and they take your story and make it into their vision. I know, I know. And cast it and all that. That is not as much as you go. I think this character should be a young Latino woman with blah blah blah. And all of a sudden, she shows up on the screen as an Irish redhead with freckles or something. You know what I mean? Like you're like, yeah. Okay, so, you know, yes. you don't get that much control normally, especially when you're first starting out. So, it, and yeah. picking locations and stuff—that's all director. Have you ever directed anything? No, I haven't. Um, I was supposed to be an extra Big Little Lies, but we were in New York, so I couldn't do it. And um, I know friends who were extras because it was in our neighborhood. And they said that, you know, the directors sort of have this iron fist, even with the extras of where they could stand and who they could talk to. But I think because I love movies so much and it's visual storytelling instead of verbal storytelling, I think I could let go. I'm not sure because it is my baby. Yeah, but no. It also requires a different medium. I know that. It can't yeah, be. Yeah, you, it, you, it's, not, it's not giving up your baby. It's giving away your baby to an unknown <laughs> foster parent. Um, you may never see your baby again. And if you do, it may look nothing like the child you gave up. Yeah. Yeah. No. I have to ask, I, like, what is your favorite movie? I feel like you would have just a fantastic answer. Is like, do you have a specific movie or a specific genre or a specific director that you're just like, ah? I don't think I could list just one, Vanessa. I have seen probably a thousand movies. I've reviewed on my my website is from. 2011 so it's 10 years and it's a movie or miniseries a week i have 1500 followers a day on my my blog and uh i get comments oh, i didn't like that movie at all and oh i love that i can hardly wait to recommend it to all my friends and family it's such a loss that they haven't seen it um my four favorite actresses though even though some of the movies they've been in haven't been that great I would say uh, Meryl Streep mm-hmm. and Jessica Lange, uh, Melissa, Melissa Leo, and Frances McDormand. They're all very, very good. Um, and I like dark and heavy. Comedy is the most difficult to write. It's probably why comedy writers oftentimes get the biggest bucks from Hollywood. And um, the least amount of awards. <laughs> Yes, yes, that's true too. I, I, I know I, a few screenwriters, so I know that. Yeah. Uh, and I just think that movies have come so far, including the miniseries, partly as a result of the distribution being wider and wider. You don't have to see a movie in the theater. But I think uh, movies really rival novel writing now. And I'm just. Okay, wait, we got to take a break. We will be right back, guys. This is the voice of Drinking with Authors. You are at our commercial break, and our commercial is, hey, do you want to be a guest on our show? Or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show? Or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of? That would have to stump us. But you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message 
or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you. We're just talking about screenplay brilliance. I actually, you know, it's interesting is that I think some series have way better writing than a lot of the movies and stuff too. Yes. I feel they're able to explore stories in ways that a movie just can't because movies are such a snapshot mm -hmm. and some brilliance. And it's funny you, you, you talk about writing those reviews. So one of um of many moons ago, but I used to write for a local paper and they were like, do you want you to do movie reviews? And I'm like, I don't want to do movie reviews. Everybody does movie reviews. Like, you can pick up any paper and see movie reviews. And they're like, well, we'd like you to do movie reviews. And I said, okay, but I could, I'll only do movies that are not in theaters anymore. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I started an entire column called Movies You Might Have Missed. Ah, great. So I'd write about three movies that they might not have seen because it was old and they were themed and either by directors or based on novels by a certain person. And like, I would just discuss what they should go back and look at because I think it's great when you talk about, oh my gosh, like my dad is infamous for calling me like, he called me last night and he's like, what are you watching? And I'm like, um, well, not, I mean, I'm working on publication or working on writing. Like I don't have a little ton of time, but. I did break my leg recently, so I, I watched the entire Breaking Bad series. Uh, one of the best ever. Truly. Like, that character, that, that character arc is one of the best character arcs uh, ever. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I actually, exactly. I actually, like, watch TV, like, films and shows in subtitles. Um, and it started because I was watching Peaky Blinders and they have that thick, you know, um, yes. and I was like, oh, and I don't want, yeah, I don't want to miss it. But then I realized that it is like such a masterclass when you find a good show or good movie on how to write dialogue, because like, I just remember reading it and then I was like, oh my God, whoever wrote Peaky Blinders, like is amazing. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it, like I just remember like writing down lines and I was like, oh my God, like if there was a way to ingest these words and the magic of this, like I wanted to know its secrets, you know? Uh, but I feel like reading, actually reading it as you're watching is such a great way to kind of like internally, like, you know, improve in writing. And, and also it's just a great way to just make sure you're not missing anything, you know? Uh, but yeah, Peaky Blinders was probably like one of my favorites, writing wise. You're like Karen Murphy. He is great. I love him. He's great. But he is also, so good. I think it's affected my reading. The kind of books I like now are kind of very minimalist and streamlined with regard to scenery description mm -hmm. and a lot of place setting. I really like the dialogue. I want dialogue rich, almost like reading a screenplay. Those are the novels that I've sort of started leaning towards in terms of what I prefer to read. Mm. See, that's fascinating you say that because I am an avid hater when people describe too much shit in books. Like, it annoys the crap out. I'm going to be just blunt. Like, I, you know, we, I, I've talked about this before, and this is my favorite example is the planes of passage where she's describing the graph 
ad nauseum for hundreds of pages. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, listen, I am so proud of you for doing your work on this time period and the types of trees, but nobody cares. You know, like, how does this move the story forward? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, it's interesting because when we're, when we're reading um, even submissions and stuff like that, and we're looking at these and I go, get to the point. Like, I got it. We walked in the house. You do not have to describe every part of the house. Nobody yeah. cares. Unless this house is vitally important, all we need to know is that you're in a house. It only becomes important if there's an upstairs and a downstairs and you have to have that for some scene later when they're running. I don't know. But like, who cares? They they got home. They walked into their house. Well, they walked into their house and their front door slowly, you know, went into the right and they walked in. Nobody cares. That's how I feel, Erica. I mean, you have to describe the doorknob and the kind of wood that was on the door. But some people really love that because I have a, a lot of friends in different. You like that, Vanessa? A little bit. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. There is definitely too much like there is definitely uh, but sometimes I just kind of want to like fall into the scene and and as much as I love you know we we as a reader bring our own experiences and imagery into the story when we're reading it sometimes I do want I, I hate I, I'm not the biggest fan when it's too simplistic you know I want some detail because especially when it's historical fiction, for example, or like, I just think of Anne Rice, uh, interview with a vampire. It's so atmospheric. Like I can imagine these vampires walking through, you know, New Orleans and just their movement. And, and so like, I, I have to have, but I, I agree too much, but I don't like, I like a nice balance between it. But see, the thing is, in the interview with a vampire, the cities were characters to that book. That is okay. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. It's part of it. I, I love her describing that, but that's because that was part of it. Now, she described a very opulent room, right? Very opulent room there with a piano, but she didn't go, and the draperies were velvet wrapped with tassels. Embroidered <laughs> with thick thread. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you go, this, is this important? Because for me, it's funny, I was talking to an author last night, and one of the things he said I thought was really important is, when people describe certain things, at least a lot of us go, okay, we got to remember that, because that's important to the story. And then nothing ever happens yeah. with that stupid embroidered tassel. But mm -hmm. you've given your attention to this embroidered tassel because they brought it up. So you obviously, somebody needs to be strangled or something with it later, and then it never comes up again. Yeah. I feel the same way, Erica. When you see some of these series on TV and they're zooming in on a character that's supposed to be the hook coming into the series, and then you hardly ever see that character again, I think, oh, they were introduced in the first scene of the episode. It's got to be very important. And I hate it when it's just sort of extrinsic to what the main plots are. And you get that in stories that are written and in stories that are cinematic. Yeah, I think that I've had discussions with people about missed opportunities, especially like I remember finishing one series and with a friend and we were talking about it, how like there was all these opportunity to either like go in a direction and it's kind of like they built it up to the watcher and then all of a sudden it's just like eh, it fizzled out and it's like 
But why, why go through all the trouble of developing, like, for instance, like an attraction between two people? And even if they're not endgame, at least allow it to actually happen and then it explode and go dissipate and dissipate, you know, instead of being this like weird, you know, thing, you know, sort of a side. Why invest your time in something that's not going to go anyplace and it's just going to vanish. And I felt that way too. When you have a detail about even the setting, like when you pick the place for a novel, there should be a reason why it is set in that place. Yeah. Exactly. No, I, I agree. And it's interesting is because you can write about a town and everything and you never have to say the name of that town. Yeah. Exactly. Like I I Town's think the character. Yeah. Unless it's part of it, it's it you know, actually Dan Wells has a series that starts with I'm not a serial killer. That's the name of the first book. And I don't remember the name of the series and he'll tell me. So Dan, if you're listening, I love you still and don't judge me. But um, in his friend, but one of the things about it follows this um, uh, boy through certain small towns and he doesn't name every single town. And he does a very good job of not talking. Like we went into the house, um, they let us into the bedroom, but it's not like they let us into the bedroom and there was a, double-sized bed or a full-size bed that had a weird comforter. Like when he adds a detail, it's something that comes up later in, yes. in the plot line. So then it's, I don't know, that's, and every reader is different. It's kind of like, um, I like when there's, there are layers. I love layers to anything. And, you know, one thing that drives me nuts to talk about series is when I go from one season to the next and the, the writers change so much that it becomes something different than it was and I'm like yeah. Oh, mm, ah, I hate that. Yeah. everything about what's happening right now because the characters aren't doing what they did there's not this like tension but are you surprised sometimes in a series they change writers to develop the story and it's phenomenal I'm thinking of Handmaid's Tale. Margaret Atwood was not, I mean, she's an executive producer, but she wrote the first season, that's where the book ends. And then it's now, I think in season four or five, and it's still amazing with whatever the writers are who got inside of the heads of the main characters. I think it's, that's why like, you know, if, if you know, people who have the, should have authors, because I feel Margaret Atwood still, even though she didn't write the other seasons had to be, heavily involved and this is why I feel like it's such a missed opportunity why you know when you see these beloved books movies films whatever that have such a huge following but then they flop but then you always hear that the author like barely had any kind of say or any kind of anything you know involved in the project and I feel like they should be a huge part of the process you know well, because I'll tell you why that's not always the right choice not always, but... No, but the part of the reason is this. When when you're looking at a book or a story, and I was talking to um, somebody about Jurassic Park, and they were like, that was my favorite book-to-movie adaptation. And part of me like was like, you know, that was the guy got on my face. It was a guest, so I maintained my composure. You have to watch YouTube. That look. But I maintained my composure because I was like, are you effing kidding me? Like, I thought what they did with Jurassic Park was turn it into a kid's movie. It was a bit of a, much more of a horror 
harrowing tale of what happens when they go to this island. But I, I understood why they did that and all that stuff, right? But um, he was like, they, they brought this larger than life thing and people, and people loved that movie, but that was about six pages of the book. If you read the book, it wasn't the entire book. It actually, they changed some of the characters in it, that whole thing, but you gotta go, that movie was amazing. I think when somebody truly knows the book, then they can direct it and they can do that because they remember all the stories beneath the stories. Because you can only take a small part of the book, one part of the story, and tell that when you're telling a thing on a book. That's why I love series a lot better because you have more room to play with it. But if it's two hours, 120 minutes, even if it's three hours, if you look at a screenplay, you're not taking a large percentage of that book and making it into a thing. So you have to pick what storyline do you want to tell? What part of the story, not the whole thing, what part of the story do you want to tell, right? But having somebody who knows all of the material understands the sort of iceberg beneath the story to tell it and then represent it can be great. But when you get into people who are just doing it because they're hiring Michael Bay to direct it because it's got bombs in it, then you're going to get that. Like, that's what you're going to get as a movie. And I think sometimes they miss the mark on what story in the book to tell. Like, I, I was one of the movies that I'm tremendously mad at is Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, I didn't read the book. I just saw I didn't either. I watched the movie. I actually enjoyed the movie, but I, I the movie. read the book. Completely different story. Now, see, I can enjoy both. Um, I'm interested in what happens with Killer of the Flower Moon. That mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read that book. It's nonfiction. It's about the Kiowa Indians and how their land was stolen from them because of the oil rights in Oklahoma and how the FBI came in and they murdered some of them. And Leonardo DiCaprio. This does not sound like it has a happy ending. No, no it does not have a happy ending. And Leonardo DiCaprio is going to play one of the FBI agents. And I don't care what they do that changes the book. If the movie can hold its own and have a character arcs and have forward momentum, and just take basically what I just said. Okay, it's going to be a story about how the Kiowa Indians and the Kiowa tribes were really, really sacrificed and cheated. That's what I want. If they take that, that you know, Leonardo DiCaprio generally, generally, 90% or 95%, 98% from great actor in a movie, right? Yeah. yeah. But what if they take that and somehow they, it, it twisted that the Indians did bad things and they put yeah. an undercurrent that they deserved it? Okay, if they did that, it's a completely different story. And if the story can hold on its own, I would just say, oh, the book is very different from the movie. For example, to me, uh, A Beautiful Mind, that book, if you read the book, the movie makes a heroine out of somebody who really wasn't and then makes him a hero out of things he did that were really tragic but i said to myself this is the movie and this is the book and they both can be very good but then again i wasn't the author and as you were saying before you're going to be 
shoving your baby off to some adoption agency. I don't know if that emotional detachment would occur as it does to just reading the book and then seeing the movie. Right. I, no, think I, I think you have to let it go. Stephen King talks a lot about this. He talks about the fact that there's some of his things that he didn't like. Mm -hmm. um, um, like he didn't I, like the original. The Shining the, specifically, I think I remember him hating. Which one? The Shining. He the Shining, that's what I meant. The original The Shining, he didn't like at all. The Jack Nicholson version, which everybody says is the best version, but yeah. he didn't like that version of the story. But I think there was a point in time because as um, I have some, I have a friend, she wrote her thesis actually on Stephen King, um, the stand, but I think he talks about the fact that he kind of just goes, whatever, in a way, you know, like they're going to do something different. So you either have to try to cling on to it for dear life and hope they do right by it and do what you want, or they have, you have to go that's fine. They're paying me. I'm going to get it. Go do what you want to. Hopefully this will make people read my book. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, to your point, you just said about a beautiful mind, Silver Linings Playbook. I highly recommend reading this book. It is an amazing book, but they made the journey and the acceptance. That book does not have an unhappy ending. It doesn't have a happy ending, if that makes sense. It's one of those books that just continues yeah. past that in your mind. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? It's more like they give you a snapshot of a period of time with these characters and it begins at a certain point and then they kind of just let it go. But in the movie, and don't get me wrong, I think Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence, I enjoyed the movie. For me, I've always had a big problem when, um, and it's my own personal thing, when the movie is nowhere close to the book like at all in the general sense i don't think you have to put every single scene but you know i remember sitting in the movie theater with my daughter when what was it the sixth harry potter came out or something the movie and they added the scene at the weekly house with the wedding that was never in the book and i'm like you have an entire book why are you adding a scene that is completely irrelevant and my daughter who was younger at the time who had read them is like that doesn't happen in the book. And I'm like, you have an entire, like the books are 5 million pages thick and you had to invent a scene? You're like, what the hell are you doing? It's stuff like, I, I get very excitable. And this is what we write a screenplay. So I, I don't mind differences as long as they're capturing the spirit of the book. Like for instance, I love My Sister's Keeper. The movie. I haven't seen that one yet. That's on my list. Oh, I, I love it. And I feel, and it's because they changed the ending. Uh -huh. uh, have you read the book? No. Okay. Read the book and then read, watch the movie. They completely changed the whole meaning behind My Sister's Keeper. It's even the title of the book, right? My Sister's yeah. Keeper. This girl yeah. explaining you know, this relationship she has with her sister who is, you know, essentially dying from cancer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this huge climactic pivotal moment at the very end of the book and they completely flip it in the movie. And to me, it ruined the whole purpose of the book. Now, if I take another example, the house of, um, the house of Hill, uh, the haunting of Hill House, 
the, the, and if you look at the book, the movie, and then the TV show that came out on Netflix, uh, the movie was closer to the book, even though very different. The show is completely different, but I, I'm obsessed with the show and I love the book and I'm okay with them being com two completely different things because I felt they were really well developed mm -hmm. of, and being two separate things. The films are, uh, is are okay, but, um, you Huh? The film is a joke. You're being nice. I'm being nice, but it, you <laughs> know, cheesy horror movie that doesn't make sense and doesn't follow the plot of the book. Yeah, except well, you have to admit they did. They were better at saying all these people are adults and they're closer to what the the the, the whole uh, dream study or whatever it was in the film like matched up with the book. But like the show, the Netflix show was completely different, but it was still. I love that. It's like chef's kiss. Like, I, I think that's a fantastic show. It, it just, it was amazing. But, um, but yeah. I like that we totally veered off while drinking and you're talking about writing <laughs> podcasts. Well, the two sides of the same, same storytelling phenomenon though. Mm -hmm. Have you ever written a play or a screenplay? No, I used to read them though. I just loved reading them. And, you know, the directions entering from the left and this kind of, because that was a visual part of reading a screenplay. But I think it would be fun to write a screenplay based on things unsaid and what I would leave in and what I would take out. I think you should do that. Just even as an exercise for yourself, I think that would be phenomenal. Yeah. I think you know? it would be fun to do. Because you have to do the, you know, the scene one, you know, act one, act two, act three. Yeah. And it's interesting when you take a book of any size to try to do Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. It's interesting you say that, Erica, because when I write, I do think of it in terms of acts as if it were on the stage. Mm -hmm. Well, if, have, you ever, have you ever heard the book or read the book Save the Cat? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I read it after I wrote Things Unsaid. I went, wow, that's exactly the kind of process that I did. Because but I can imagine people coming on the stage. Yeah, I feel like that's such a great test to make sure you're hitting all those beats. And it's amazing how if you look at the books, the movies that are like super, super successful, even TV shows, if you cut up episodes yeah. Yeah. in those chunks, it, it flows. And, and it's interesting. It's kind of because our minds are trained to recognize things in stories, even though we're, even if we don't, you know, out, you know, think of it exactly. It's kind of like a more internal instinct. You know, we look for those little cues because yeah. it's kind of in Western, especially in Western storytelling, you yeah. know, and um, it's such a great, it's a great book to kind of like test your novels, your stories, especially in the editing process to make sure you're hitting those beats. I was wondering, because you're an editor, when I read Save the Cat, after writing things unsaid and I was at the editors and he talks about a saggy middle, I thought, oh my God, that's exactly what the editor is talking about. And I wondered if you put books to the test using something like Save the Cat. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Like there is, I think, I, I can't remember her name. I think it's Jessica Brody. She took Save the Cat and wrote Save the Cat Writes a Novel. 
So took the same concept and kind of changed it to fit more of a novel because, you know, there's still, even though they're very similar that you have to have story beats, there is a little bit of a difference. And I know, I mean, I always try to check and make sure when I'm editing other people's work, you know, and it's not about changing the integrity of the book. It's a more of saying, pointing out sections saying, Hey, you know, there's something here that's not fully developed or there's something that's falling apart here or this scene is not serving a purpose. What can you do to like, you know, make sure you're hitting those specific beats, you know? But yeah, for sure. I definitely find that those definitely help me when I'm not only, you know, working on my own novels and stories, but when I'm helping other people out. Yeah, there's always, yeah. You know, one of the true tests, too, of a good thing is read it out loud. Yes. Read yeah. it out loud and can you read it? Does it make sense and does it flow? Because yeah. I, it's interesting. I, um, I did a lot of volunteer work with um, a not-for-profit. And one of the things is we had an open mic prose night, not a poetry, blah, blah, blah. Come bring a short story for 10 minutes and read your story, right? And I could always tell 1,000% when somebody had never read their story out loud before. Interesting. How could you tell? Because they would always have little missteps in the wording. And you could hear the words and you could go, I could see how they wrote that it made sense, but they never spoke about it. Like, as you, when you read a story, if you actually can read some of your favorite stories out loud, there are certain things that will jam you up in reading that are not necessarily grammatically incorrect or whatever. You just go, what the, what the crap is the point of this word? Like, why did I put this here? You know, because when you're reading and telling a story, there's a certain, to the point, the beats and the flow of telling a story and where do you take a breath and where do you do a cliffhanger? You can always tell if you write a story and there's not room for you to breathe while you're reading the story, you have not done a good job of writing that story because there are those moments where you should be able to breathe and then continue on with your story. So they'd read them and they'd be like, and the cat then opened the door and as it walked out the door, blah, blah, and you know, it closed the door behind me. And I'm like, you could tell when they're reading, they're like, oh my God, I said the word door three times. In the <laughs> I, I think also you can tell because if you start sounding monotone, uh, it's it's definitely an indication of there's something wrong because if you can't inf infuse the character's personality because I like last night <laughs> I was I was doing writing sprints with um, two uh, two other ladies that were are in uh, Four Horsemen with us and I read a paragraph that I wrote and I you know when I'm reading it I want to put the spunkiness of my character and then come to find out that. I, I hitched in certain spots where it wasn't flowing with the character's personality and what was written down. And that was a great way to be like, and so I ended up after I read it, went back and fixed a couple words to kind of help it flow. And then when I read it again, it was like, it just flowed and it was perfect. But you know, both of you, I can tell are very active, energetic speakers. A lot of writers are quiet and kind of, introverted so they can read something out loud and they'll catch things like the repetition of door but they won't get the spunkiness or the true emotion from reading it themselves because when they're reading it in public they're not comfortable being public speakers 
So right. the reading out loud, I think, catches little things that don't feel authentic or repetitions of words. But authors reading their own books sometimes are really, really not. I don't even like doing it in front of my family. Like my, I remember my dad would beg me to give him like sections of, and I'm like, no. And then he would come right behind me when I'm on my computer. I'm like, go away. You can't look at this. Like, I feel like you're like looking straight into my soul. Like yeah. you can't do this. But I feel like in those instances, like you do as much as you can to read it out loud. Even if you're like by yourself in a room, yeah. I yeah. do that. And then you have to eventually, which was like one of the hardest things for me to do is give it to someone yeah. to read. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a friend or a family member, but just someone who's at least intuitive enough, who enjoys reading to kind of give some kind of feedback. And I think that kind of would help someone who is more introvert, because mm -hmm. no matter what you do in writing, you eventually have, unless you're going to be writing in a vacuum, you have to put yourself out there. So if yeah. you're un unwilling to speak in front of a group of people, which is okay, you have to eventually pull the bandaid, even though no matter how much it hurts, because I don't think at any point you're ever ready, you have to give that off to someone right. to read it and, and critique it. Sure, but I think you can read it to yourself. You have the characters, you know the characters, read the characters. And if you if you have a problem reading and it doesn't flow, I just think it's a, a tool that writers can use. You know, you yeah. talk with Diana a lot about dialogue. I'm a huge dialogue whore. I love dialogue. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. I feel dialogue can move so much of a story forward. Yeah. And I also yeah. want to make people laugh. Like I, and cringe, it depends on my book. Um, but I want to have an emotional effect on the reader. And if, when I find out um, with my humorous erotica novels that people laugh, uh, they told me that they were like, laughing their head off at a scene then i go i nailed that scene yeah, yeah. you talked about look at me circling back with my glasses and wine you talked about um how you know earlier we talked about how hard it is to write comedy comedy is one of the hardest things to write it is also one of the hardest things to act it drives me nuts that the academy does not acknowledge some of the best humor actors that there are in the world because the delivery of a line I, I get it. There are some people that do well in the crying and the whole nine yards, but the drama, but the delivery of a perfectly timed comedic line, especially the straight man and not sexually, but the straight man delivering a line that causes you to just die laughing. And these people aren't acknowledged well at all to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, we were talking before about whether, um, I had my friends who gave me stories about their own cranky parents that I put into some of the scenes. We would read portions back and forth, especially because the stories were stories they had told, told me and I wanted to make sure they were okay. But it was very interesting to see them read their own story and how that changed my writing. Things that they thought were kind of bittersweet or touched them where I thought they were kind of humorous because they weren't my parents, you know? And reading that, as you were saying, in terms of how you really appreciate it when the reader laughs out loud at something you said, it really made me understand how dialogue that's just recited is reacted to in such a different way. 
depending upon sometimes the performance of it, but also the way you choose one word instead of another. Oh my God, for sure. You're down a rabbit hole. But you know what? We are out of time for this episode. So Diana, no. we're going to have another episode, so we're going to get to keep talking. But Diana, you need to tell um, our audience what advice you would give to authors. What advice I would give to authors? Do the writing process without being a self-critic. Just put it down on that scary white piece of paper or blank screen. And then editing is actually where I think the real writing comes in because you're just getting the ideas in and some of those characters are going to change. Some of them you're going to leave out, but at least put them in there. So you've got some kind of picture of the story. That's what I would tell them. (laughs) (laughs) That's like one of my hardest, my hardest things is, Allowing myself to be a messy drafter. Yes. Yeah. You don't do that at all. It's terrible. Okay. Diana, how do um, your fans out there find you? How do my fans contact me? Yes. Like websites and stuff. Please don't say your address. Okay. I have a a website. DianaYPaul.com. I have a blog that includes part of the writing. UnhealedWound.com. Unhealed wound is the mythological symbol of the hero, whether it's Harry Potter and the scar of the thunderbolt or in Lord of the Rings or so many stories. The hero has a scar, an unhealed wound. And then they can also contact me on social media, Facebook, Instagram is um, Diana Paul 10. And I have another one, Diana Y. Paul author. And I have Twitter at Diana Paul 10. You won't even mention the other ones, but I'm on a lot of social media. Awesome. You have been a phenomenally amazing guest. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Diana. Oh, thank you. It's been so much fun. Anytime. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Okay, this has been Drinking with Office. I've been your host, Erica Lamp. And I'm Vanessa Valiente. And we will see you next time.